How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When I was five years old, I was in love with my neighborhood garbage man. I know, it sounds crazy but he had muscles and a mustache, and I wanted him to kidnap me. I literally fantasized about him driving up and hauling me off with my family's trash. <sighs> and he wasn't the only one. I fell in love with my best friend Brad, with Mr. Rogers, even with Optimus Prime from the Transformers cartoon. No, seriously, I fell in love with a cartoon semi-truck. Young or old, human or not, I was boy crazy. Now many years and many men later, I'm still in love with the idea of love. And whenever I'm single, I hear that same little voice in my head telling me to get off my ass and find someone to fall in love with. Now, that's my relationship with romance. And chasing love may be the story that you know best too. But it's not the only happy ending. I'm Noah Michelson, and this is D is for Desire, a podcast where we explore the sticky questions about love and sex lurking in our heads, hearts, and pants from angles you could have never imagined in health class. In this episode, we're interrogating romance head-on which is something that doesn't happen a lot in our world today. Think about it. The romance industrial complex is all around us. Countless rom-coms and bridal TV, pop songs, and the entire institution of Valentine's Day. Love is always in the air, and it can kind of end up polluting everything. But what if you aren't interested in any of it? For people who identify as aromantic, Romantic attraction is hardly felt, if at all. And I say hardly because identities exist along a spectrum. You can be aromantic and still desire human connection, sex, intimacy. The list goes on and on. But the point is this. 
romance doesn't motivate everyone. And you may not know this because of our cultural obsession with that kind of love. So, let's see what decentering this teaches us. Here's one woman's not-so-romantic love story. I first realized that there was terminology for what I am um, when I was 46. I knew when I was pretty young, though, that I didn't quite experience the world in the same way that um, other people around me did. This is Josie. She's 50 years old, lives in Minneapolis, and identifies as aromantic and asexual, which means she's not romantically or sexually attracted to other people. But Josie obviously didn't know these terms growing up. I was about 10. My family was at a church service on a Wednesday night, and there was um, a guest evangelist in his family who um, showed up to preach and sing that night. And this evangelist had a son who was about 12 years old, blonde hair, blue eyes, cute as a button. Hmm. And all of my friends were going absolutely nuts over this kid, you know, giggling, laughing. And I remember looking at my mother and you know, pulling her aside and saying, what is wrong with them? <laughs> and um, she just looked at me and she said, it'll happen to you at some point. And I remember thinking, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> As I, you know, as I got a little bit older, I was still just really, really interested in, you know, horses and reading and writing poetry. I notice when somebody is um, physically attractive, but it, it, for me, it doesn't go any further than that. And so, you know, my teenage years and into my 20s, it was just kind of very confusing. I did a lot of acting. Hmm. when I was in high school. Did you think back to that moment when your mom said, you know, it'll happen to you you too at later moments and think, well, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to keep waiting? Or did you get to a point where you're just like, nope, this is just not going to happen for me? Well, um, I grew up in a really, really small town in North Dakota, like 700 people. So all through high school, I was just like, okay, there's nobody I'm interested in dating. But, you know, I'm in a small town of 700 people. When I get to college, I'll probably want to do this. I got to college and, you know, I tried dating a couple times and I'm just like, this is not working for me. I went to a very, very small um, fundamentalist Bible college in North Dakota. So again, I just thought, okay, my dating pool is really small and, you know, Maybe when I'm done with college and, you know, I moved to Minneapolis when I was 22, on my 22nd birthday, actually. And so I got to Minneapolis and I'm like, okay, maybe now I'll be interested in dating people. And I tried dating pretty hardcore from about age 21 to maybe 24. Um, by the time I was 24, I was like, this is not fun. I'm not enjoying this. I'm not good at this. Like Josie, most of us can relate to growing up in a culture that tells us to find romance. Put yourself out there. Go on dates. Go on second dates. 
and fit the mold of a quote-unquote successful love story. And that story is still, for the most part, that you'll settle down with one beautiful person of the opposite sex who will perfectly suit you and change your life. Now, some people spend years going on heterosexual dates before coming out as queer. Others endure committed, monogamous relationships only to realize they're polyamorous. Romance is a feeling, but it's also a construction of cultural expectations. To understand more about this, I spoke with Elizabeth Brake. She's a professor of philosophy at Rice University, and her work is all about how we define romance and how we fit ourselves into it. Well, I mean, I think romance is something that's very culturally defined. And if you look at the history of what romance has meant to people, there's a lot of variation in it. So when historians of marriage and the family talk about history, they talk about what they call the love revolution in marriage. You know, it's it's not that people haven't always fallen in love and had sexual attraction and romantic attraction, but there was historically a point that we can document where suddenly people began to aspire for romantic love within marriage. So marriage used to be a political and economic institution, right, to create, you know, a small household where people could divide up the labor. It wasn't viewed as something that would bring personal happiness, and it wasn't viewed as something that was going to be entered to out of romantic love or sexual passion as opposed to convenience, right, or marrying the person whose parents happen to own the farm next to your parents' farm. It relates to the Industrial Revolution, people moving into cities and working in cities where they get away from like small rural communities. And they also are able to support themselves and thus have greater choice over who they marry. But there comes this expectation that marriage will be romantically fulfilling. And then when we think about the history of marriage in the United States, marriage here has almost always been seen as something that should be consensual and should be a love match. And this, again, relates to kind of broader historical issues, like the idea that government should be consensual, we shouldn't be ruled by someone whom we haven't selected. And so now there are these profound, like, cultural, commercial pressures to enter into romantic love matches. According to Elizabeth, combine this view of marriage with a certain set of feelings, and you basically have our cultural definition of romance. But I think part of romance is the desire to spend time with another person, to look at them, to touch them, um, often to be wrapped up in fantasies about them. Um, Often it can be associated with kind of infatuation or the sense of butterflies in the stomach. And it's not necessarily sexual. Um, That's the other important thing in thinking about aromaticism. Um, Because you could be asexual but romantic, meaning you could have no sexual attraction but still want a romantic relationship with someone. Or you could be aromatic but sexual. Um, So romance and sexuality are also two distinct things, which is interesting because, you know, we often conflate those culturally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for most people, those go hand in hand. And, you know, when you're growing up and you think of um, you're going to meet someone and fall in love and then you're going to have sex or the love is actually the gateway to be able to be sexual. 
Right. Yeah. And so we conflate a lot of things as a culture. Um, so sexual attraction, romantic attraction, erotic love, marriage or sharing a life together, um, whereas other cultures have, you know, taken those things apart. Right. So, you know, in different cultures, it's been much more um the norm to have sexual relationships separate from marriage or to have romantic friendships um, that were platonic. Elizabeth came up with a word for this phenomenon. Ready? Yeah, so the term that I coined, amatonormativity, is supposed to describe um, treating a certain relation type, a romantic, sexual, monogamous, dyadic relationship, as the norm, um, meaning descriptively the assumption that most people seek such a relationship, and also normatively the assumption that that kind of relationship is good for you. And so the most basic way to describe how those assumptions work in social life is if you meet someone who says, I'm aromatic, you know, I'm not interested in a romantic relationship. Very often, um, that person may encounter the attitude, oh, you must be looking for a romantic relationship, and you just haven't found one yet. Do you have any feeling for what percentage of the population might be aromantic and Um, either does identify that way or has no idea that that's even identity and doesn't even know that that's who or what they are? Good question. Um, So part of the issue is that there's no research that's being done on aromatics because it's such a little known um, orientation. And then there's the related problem, as you mentioned. Um, People might not um, be aware of aromaticism as something to identify with. So um, someone who's lacking feelings of romantic attraction might think there's a problem with them. They might think um, that, you know, they have a physical or a psychological problem that they need to overcome. So they, they might see it as like a disorder rather than simply an aromatic orientation. Let's get back to Josie. Where we left off, she was in her 20s and dating, But to say that things weren't going well would be kind of an understatement. What was dating like for you? Give me, you know, sort of a typical date and how it affected you. Um, Well, a typical date was kind of, you know, somebody would ask me out, you know, for dinner or whatever. I would go. You know, the guys that were asking me out, it was like somebody I met at work or, you know, whatever. It would be two hours of really, you know, stilted conversation because I didn't know these people very well at all. And then they'd try to kiss me or something or hold my hand and I'd be like, okay, we're done. (laughs) And it was just like that process repeated for three or four years. And by the time I was 24, I'm just like, I'm done with this. You know, I'm not good at this. I don't like it. So if I don't like it, I probably shouldn't do it anymore. And by that point, were you still thinking, I just haven't found, quote unquote, the one? Or were you thinking, actually, maybe my life is just not going to be with someone else and I'm okay with that? I would kind of say a little bit of both. You know, I wasn't about to um, be with somebody that I didn't care about. Mm -hmm. I didn't see the point of, you know, being in a relationship just for the sake of being in a relationship. You know, it was something I just put on the back burner. It wasn't something that I cared a great deal about. Mm-hmm. You know, I had friends. I had a job that I loved. And, you know, that was pretty much enough for me. 
Um, I did end up getting married in 2000. After the break, we'll learn about Josie's marriage and how the moment she discovered aromanticism changed everything for her. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. How do you go from that to then getting married? My spouse is um, somebody that I had been pretty close friends with for approximately eight years. And then, you know, we lost track of each other for a while and ended up re-meeting at a church service in 1999 on Halloween. The two of them continued hanging out in groups and with friends. And for a while, this was kind of all Josie was looking for. I didn't end up going on what would be classified, you know, as kind of a date until it was their birthday. They showed up at my work and said, I just got paid. Let's go out for dinner. Hmm. And we ended up going to um, Pizza Luce downtown, having dinner. And, you know, my spouse at the time had Grover blue hair. There was a toddler girl that um, was walking past our table and she saw my spouse's hair stopped and just looked at him with just this awe and you know just admiration on her face my spouse got out of their chair sat down on the floor with this child and had a conversation with her for about five minutes I teach preschool You know, at that point, I was just like, I was about as smitten as I could be, Mm -hmm. you know, being aromantic. I'm just like, you know, if a toddler likes this person, this person is, you know, a good person. And I'd like to get to know them better than I even know them now. And within two months after that, we were in their car one night outside of my house just talking and... It turns out that I am so aromantic that I was proposed to and it went over right over my head. <laughs> you know, they were talking about the future and said something to the fact that they would like to spend the rest of their life with me. And I just kind of sat there. I'm just like, yeah, okay, you know, whatever. And then about 10 minutes later, I'm just like, you know, 
We spend a lot of time together and we like each other. And so we should just get married. And they pretty much burst into tears because they had originally thought that I was just kind of not interested in them that way or whatever. You know, it's kind of funny looking back on our relationship, knowing now that I'm an aromantic asexual and just looking back and seeing how that was actually playing out in the very early stages of our relationship, even though I didn't have the terminology at that point in time to describe myself as such. Right. So what made you want to get married rather than just thinking, this is someone who's like my best friend and, and yeah, I hope they're always in my life, but um, I don't think that we would get married. Was it just like societal pressure, just that's what everyone did, or, or how did you get to that point? We both are Christians, and so um, especially since we wanted to live together, marriage was something that was kind of, I, I do feel differently about my spouse than I do about other friends. But I would just say that our faith, our Christian faith, really played into why we got married. Josie's explanation makes sense. Relationships aren't just about attraction. They also fill space in our lives. Professor Brake had more to say about this. Well, so one thing we can talk about are social scripts. So there's a certain narrative socially of how a life should go, um, which we learn, you know, through school, through stories, through movies, through the way people respond to us. And, you know, very much in our culture, still, I think there's a strong expectation that people's lives have this trajectory into a romantic relationship. And that's what gives meaning and adulthood and responsibility to someone's lives. And we can see this in the way that people are treated in social situations. So for example, a boyfriend or girlfriend or a fiance or a spouse might be invited to someone's home for Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner or to a wedding as a plus one, where someone who's just a friend wouldn't be. So I think the root problem is if we see romantic relationships as like the sole thing or one of the most important kinds of relationships that gives meaning and value to our lives. And that obscures all of these other types of relationships. Definitely. That brings me to, to some of the work that you've done arguing for radical marriage reform. Talk to me about how you envision reforming marriage and what that has to do with people who have an atypical romantic attraction or don't have a romantic attraction. When it comes to marriage reform, my argument is Of course, I do think that it's important that the state protects certain relationship rights. You know, I don't agree with people who think we should abolish marriage because it's fundamentally illiberal. I think that the rights we have in relationships are very important protections for our relationships against, um, you know, major institutions that determine how our lives go. But at the same time, I think those rights ought to be extended to all sorts of caring relationships. So they could be relationships of more than two. They could be caring relationships, which are friendships, which are non-sexual. And so, of course, that would apply to people who are asexual or aromantic because it would say, hey, you know, there's no legal requirement that you sexually consummate your marriage, right? Your um, relationship, if it's aromantic or if it's asexual, is still eligible for the same rights which protect personal relationships as romantic sexual relationships are. Now, back to Josie again. By 2014, she'd been married for 14 years. 
and she loved her spouse, but hadn't yet discovered why she couldn't feel romantic attraction toward them. Until she was surfing the internet one day. I actually discovered aromanticism and asexuality pretty much at the same time. I was reading a Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, of all things, Mm. and came across a term that I didn't, I was just like, okay, I have no idea what that is. I'm going to Google it. So I looked it up online and ended up on the Avon website, and that's the Asexual Visibility and Education Network. It's the largest online community of um, aromantics and asexuals in the world. And so I ended up on that website, and I'm reading, and I'm just like, this sounds like me. Like a lightning bolt hit you. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm not broken. I'm not screwed up. There are other people out there who are like me. You know, the first thing that I felt was just profound relief. And so I'm sitting at our kitchen table in our apartment. My spouse comes home from work. I'm crying Mm. just because I am just like so overcome with emotion. And I never cry. I'm not a crier. I'm not, you know, overly emotional about most things. And, you know, of course, they're thinking something horrible has happened and there's something really badly wrong. And I'm just like, I pointed at the website and I'm just like, I think I figured out what I am. And, you know, they read through the material on the website and they looked at me and said, this we can work with. Ah. You know, it's, this is going to be okay. This explains a lot. This is like super helpful and we can work with this. How do you think your life would have been different if you had known about what it means to be aromantic 20 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe even 40 years ago, what would your life have been like? I would not have wasted so much time. You know, I look at the three years that I spent, you know, trying to date as, you know, just like a colossal waste of time Mm -hmm. that I will never get back. It's kind of a horrible way to look at it, but I'm just like, You know, I could have been putting time and energy into so many other things. It would have made things a lot easier, you know, in just so many ways. My mother just kind of expected grandchildren and, you know, talked about me getting married from the time I was very, very young. And I'm just like, I remember being like five or six and thinking, "Eh, uh, I want to be a scientist, (laughs) you know? Uh You know, when I imagined my future, it wasn't, oh, I want to get married and have, you know, 2.6 children and live in the suburbs. You know, that wasn't what I really wanted. You said, you know, when when your spouse came home and you had found this term or this website that sort of made you click into place what was going on, and your spouse was like, we can work with this. This makes sense. Does that mean that you guys had been struggling with this but didn't have the terminology and didn't know what was wrong? Was it something that you guys had talked about before? I mean, Yeah. I had a rather difficult childhood. And so my whole thing was 
okay, I'm damaged from that, and that's why I have issues with that aspect of my relationship. And I spent thousands of dollars and scads of time going to therapists to fix, quote-unquote, fix what was wrong with me. And it never worked because there was, you know, there's nothing to fix. I'm fine the way that I am. I'm just wired a little bit differently than, you know, 99% of the population. And that's okay. Now that you're out, so to speak, um, Mm -hmm. to your spouse, over the last four years, how has your relationship changed? It's gotten a lot easier and a lot better because... I can just be who I am now. Mm-hmm. Before I knew what my romantic and sexual orientations actually were, I kind of felt like I was broken. Like I wasn't, I wasn't doing my marriage or my relationship right. Mm-hmm. Another thing that my spouse said right after I ended up finding out that there were terms for what I am, and this I will never forget, they said to me, this makes sense. Mm. They said, you know, when we were first dating and we were engaged, it almost felt like you were trying to follow a script. Wow. That's what I'm supposed to do, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm supposed to kiss you on the cheek. When we're out in public, we're supposed to hold hands. You know, left to my own devices, that's not something that I really think about. Our society is so heteronormative and so wrapped up in romantic relationships being the most important relationship that you will ever have that people who don't experience romantic or sexual attraction, you know, we can have a really hard time in relationships. Mm -hmm. Like even now I have to remind myself, okay, my spouse needs physical affection. They need to be touched. They need me to hold their hand. They need hugs. And those are things that you are willing or happy to do for them because mm-hmm. yeah. because I guess it's a partnership and you compromise and you give and take, yeah? Right. After talking with Josie, I couldn't stop thinking about how she and her spouse have been married for 20 years, which is obviously way longer than a lot of people who aren't aromantic. And this reminds me of another thing Professor Brake told us. So we tend to like package all of these things together, which can be problematic because, you know, one thing that's often noted about the romantic or the erotic is that they're not sustainable, whereas um, we want to kind of combine them in this marital relationship, which you know, is intended to be lifelong or permanent, although it's often not. And so some people argue that part of the reason divorce rates are so high is because we expect marriage to be romantically fulfilling and sexually fulfilling. Expecting the person you're with to be an emotional partner, a sexual partner, and a constant companion? That's a big ask. Josie and her spouse define their relationship on different terms. They don't expect each other to be everything, and maybe that's why they're together. And happy. Maybe, if there were more widely known examples of what it means and feels like to be aromantic, 
all of us could imagine more ways of being in relationships, period. And while we're dreaming big, maybe we could even start to consider all of our relationships to be equally important instead of spending all of our time obsessing over finding the one. Maybe we could feel complete and appreciate love no matter what it looks like. Is for Desire is produced and edited by Nick Offenberg, Sarah Patterson, Becca DiGregorio, and me, Noah Michelson. With additional production for this episode from Sophie Nikitas and Sarah Ventre. Until next time, remember, it's not taboo if it turns you on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.